0: Everybody, we're looking at the topic of miracles in Mark's gospel. Now we can stay on slide one. That's great, good. Uh, We're looking at the topic of miracles in Mark's gospel, and today actually we hear about two miracles. Um, Jesus heals a sick woman and raises a young girl from the dead. And um, these two miracles come to us as kind of a combo meal deal one story with two miracles included. Uh, In fact, our text today is an example of something uh, that Bible scholars call a Markan intercalation. And the Markan intercalation is is simply the idea that Mark seems to sometimes tell basically two stories at once. Uh, He starts with story one, and then before story one finishes, he introduces another story, and then when that story concludes, then he finishes story one. In other words, it's a bit like a story sandwich with story two uh, uh, sandwiched by story one. And there are six examples of this in Mark's gospel. Uh, I invite you uh, to see if you can find the other five. Um, In our case today, story one is about Jarius and his daughter, and story two is about the woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And in our case today, the intercalation occurs naturally. This is how it unfolded. So there's no rearranging uh, of the order of things that was, wasn't necessary in this case for Mark. But the interesting thing about Mark and Intercalations is that by telling two stories together, we see more than if the two stories were simply told one after the other because we get basically to compare and contrast the two stories to get more out of what's going on. So let's consider story one. Uh, In story one we meet a synagogue ruler and his name is Jarius. Uh, In the Bible when somebody is named that usually conveys importance, uh, naming, bestowing honor and dignity and a synagogue ruler is an important man, a highly respected leader in the local community. Undoubtedly Jarius would have heard Already a lot about Jesus, especially that he was a miracle worker. Uh, For Jesus has already healed a large number of people of all kinds of diseases and disabilities, as well as delivering people from unclean spirits. But Jarius would also have known about the opposition that was rising against Jesus. And last week, uh, when we considered Jesus' healing of a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, we, we saw how this prompted uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians in that same district of Galilee. We saw how they started to, to plot how they can kill Jesus. So, Jarius knows that associating with Jesus could carry with it an enormous cost. And in view of his position in the synagogue, Jarius would do well to keep his distance. But actually, he doesn't. He doesn't keep his distance. He falls at Jesus' feet. His, his little daughter is dying. And, and, and he means dying. She is in the process of dying. He, he begs Jesus to come with him in order that Jesus might put his hands on her and so be healed and live. And, and we can well imagine this man's panic, his terror, his pain, his fear. Jesus readily agrees and follows the man. And we were told at the start that a large crowd had gathered around him. And again we read that a large crowd goes with him, pressing in on him on every side. And perhaps some of this crowd, there you were know, people kind of captive to curiosity and they didn't want to miss out on seeing Jesus do a miracle. I mean, after all, many of Jesus' miracles had been, had been up to this point in time, many of them had been public. You know, large numbers of people saw the man with the withered hand get healed. Um, healing's done in front of crowds. Um, so perhaps many of these people, they just wanted to see a miracle for themselves. Perhaps others, they wanted a miracle for themselves. They had their own agenda, their own need. And indeed, there was a woman uh, in the crowd who is desperate for Jesus' attention, for Jesus' healing. And so we go to story two. And now suddenly we meet a a woman with a a very personal, very intimate, very awful problem. And Mark slows down the narrative to unpack her story. She, She has suffered much. Terrible suffering. Under many doctors. She's tried everyone and everything. She has spent all that she had. This condition has not only taken her health, it's also taken her money. She is sick and broke. And she's only gotten worse. This is a tragic and yet not entirely unfamiliar story. Things like this happen today. But one aspect of this poor woman's condition that may be hidden from us as modern readers is the fact that her unceasing menstrual flow would have made her ceremonially unclean, and as such, she would have been an outcast. She would not have been allowed to attend synagogue worship, the one place others may have prayed for her, nor would she technically have been allowed to live in the village at all. If she was unmarried when this started, then she would have remained unmarriable. If she was married when this started, then it's entirely conceivable that she's been divorced by her husband uh, either on the grounds of infertility or on the grounds of her inability to satisfy his need for marital relations or, of course, both. We don't know a history, but what we see is that she is in a public space, a masculine domain in that culture. And there is, we see that there is no husband, no brother or father to represent her and to ask Jesus to come and visit her in the privacy of their home. What this woman needs is a private miracle from Jesus. And that's obvious to all of us. Her condition is not something that can be spoken about in the public sphere. And so in her home culture, what she desperately needs is a Jarius male figure to ask on her behalf. But she has no male figure to ask on her behalf. She stands in contrast to story one. She has no Jarius. Furthermore, unlike Jarius, she is not named. Jarius is a named, high-status male, a central figure in community and synagogue life. This woman is unnamed, low-status, unclean, outcast, a female beyond the fringe of community and synagogue life. Uh, The the two are contrasts. What she does, she takes her welfare into her own hands and she comes up behind him in the crowd and without anyone being aware of it, she touches Jesus' cloak. And Mark doesn't tell us that she touched the edge of his cloak, but Matthew and Luke, in in their accounts of this story, they, they do give us that extra detail. Now, in the Old Testament... Cloak uh, represents a cloak or a robe, represents a person's authority, and the hem of the robe in particular is somehow symbolically meant to convey, in particular, their power and authority. To grasp the hem of somebody's robe is actually a powerful thing to do in one way or another, symbolically. Well, in this instance, Um, She knows immediately her bleeding stopped and she knew within herself that she had been completely healed and freed from her suffering at long last, after 12 years. Mission successful? Or was it? Well, uh, Mark now gives us something of a Jesus' eye view of this situation. Uh, Power has gone out from him. Jesus knew that. But the miracle obviously did not depend upon Jesus' own will. Somebody made that decision for him. And we can understand that that somebody was the Father. It is revealed to Jesus that power had gone out from him, but it is not revealed to him as as to whom it was given, nor why it was given. He doesn't know. So he asks, and there is a small moment of irony as we witness the inability of the disciples to help Jesus with with this. They are totally unaware of what's happened and mystified by his question. Here we come in the crowd, all being jostled and bumped, and you ask who touched you? Well, Jesus perseveres, and and the woman, now like Jarius, uh, falls at his feet and confesses the whole situation. We notice that she comes and falls trembling, trembling with fear. What what might this woman have expected to happen next? Well, in order to answer that question, I I should say just a little bit something more about this whole ceremonially clean, unclean thing. This concept is introduced in the Law of Moses um, in the book of Leviticus. And the fundamental idea is that things, both people and objects can only come into the presence of God if they are clean, ceremonially clean. If something becomes unclean, a person or an object, it has become defiled and it cannot coexist with God and his people. It must either be destroyed or removed or made clean. People can be made ceremonially clean, but only by way of washing and sacrifice. Any, any discharge of bodily fluid rendered a person, either male or female, unclean. Um, t- temporary discharge, temporarily unclean. Any continuing discharge of bodily fluid, therefore rendered a person, be that person male or female, continuously unclean. Now, th- this whole concept of clean-unclean can, 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 can feel extremely alien to us. At- just as it was, I am quite sure, to the Israelites when they first heard about this stuff too. But its chief purpose, probably, was to teach the Hebrews the notion of holiness. That God is perfect in every way, in such a way that separates him from all that is not holy. It's the otherness of God. His, an intrinsic characteristic of God, God is holy. So what we need to know for this story now is that this woman would have been understood not only to be unclean and defiled, but actually to be a defiling influence, and that by touching a rabbi, she has defiled him too, making him ceremonially unclean. He's got to withdraw, he's got to wash and do this and so on and so forth until the sun goes down, then he can come back. Therefore, what might this poor woman have expected to happen next? Well, undoubtedly, what this woman expected was a stinging rebuke and censure and even more public shame and disgrace. But but Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Daughter, Um, Instead of rebuke, Jesus actually receives her as an intimate family relation, as a member of his family. Jesus is the Jarius male protector figure who will now publicly stand to defend her honor. She no longer stands alone. She belongs to Jesus as his daughter, unconditional safety and belonging. Your faith has healed you. Uh, Literally, your faith has saved you. Greek has uh, no separate word for, for healing. Um, um, uh, the, the one word does for both salvation and for healing. The two words are interchangeable. The NIV undoubtedly, uh, is undoubtedly right in translating the word here as healed, for that is what the context requires. But we need to see that beyond physical healing, this story is also about spiritual salvation. For the two things are not wholly unrelated. Uh, Something eternal has happened here. Although undoubtedly this woman wanted a private healing of her very personal problem, what she ended up doing was making a very public acknowledgement of her belief that Jesus is the solution to her problem. And when she did that, the Father honored her. And uh, this should remind us of the healing of the paralytic, which we looked at two weeks ago, because actually the same miracle is unfolding here before us, and that's the miracle of justification by faith alone. An extraordinary thing. The moment this woman believed God about Jesus, at that very moment the father recognized this woman as belonging to him, his friend, his daughter, his child, forgiven and set free the moment she thought jesus is the solution to my problem she belongs to god forgiven and set free Uh, this woman has truly been saved she is god's daughter Uh, go in peace and be freed from your suffering literally go in peace and be healthy this is a blessing Uh, Both go and be healthy are imperatives, commands from Jesus. Jesus is commanding her body to be healthy, to remain well, to be, as this blessing is translated in our NIV Bibles, uh, to remain permanently free of this affliction. So one of the things that we can see is that this woman actually received a heck of a lot more than she asked for. Um, She wanted healing and she got it. That's great. But she got a lot more. Um, she's also received belonging and blessing. She's got peace with God and peace in her body forevermore. And actually, that's, that is astonishing. Um, and I think something else probably um, is happening here as well. I think probably Jesus healed her of her shame. Uh, because boy, oh boy, oh boy, is shame crippling. And um, Jesus called her daughter publicly publicly affirming her as his intimate associate. And I think that after 12 years of shame, rejection, disgrace, I think she went home with her head held high. Public dignity restored as well as everything else. Jesus heals broken hearts as well as broken bodies. Story two concludes. Story one will now conclude. Um, there's, There's a tragic twist in the story um Jarius's daughter has died uh, he's told the news just as the conversation between jesus and the woman is finishing up and boy how unlucky is that if only this woman hadn't interrupted jesus on his way maybe they would have gotten there in time i mean what a tragic chance thing to happen but jesus says to him don't be afraid just believe And if the crowd had been hoping for a public miracle, uh, they'll now be disappointed. This is going to be a private miracle. Jesus allows no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John. And when they arrive at the home of the synagogue leader, uh, they encounter a big crowd. Um, And in addition to family and friends uh, gathered at the girls' deathbed, we, we see a big crowd, which probably included professional mourners. And the whole community would have been expected to grieve loudly and publicly. So in a way that we might find difficult to imagine, there would have been deep, sincere grief as well as staged and theatrical grief. Not insincere, but rather a sign of respect for this important man's daughter. Loud wailing, people beating the chest, maybe maybe throwing up dust into the air and and wailing and, 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 and very, very loud noise and crying and Jesus says something provocative and it gets a reaction he says that the child is not dead but asleep and of course they know that the child is dead uh, the word sleep uh, is a euphemism for death in the new testament it's used by both Jesus and Paul as a way of pointing to the truth that those who die will again awake at the resurrection of the dead B- but but what Jesus is doing isn't isn't wordplay um Jesus is rebuking them. He's rejecting them. He's sending them away. And I I think with a degree of indignation. Um, Why should that be? Well, this crowd will have known that Jairus has asked Jesus for help and their action, which is to commence the public process of of mourning, um, is actually faithlessness. Um, What they are doing is a public display of their assumption that Jesus is not the solution to their problem. What they're doing is a public display of their assumption that Jesus cannot now help or change the situation. And at this point, they're given the last laugh, that they laugh at Jesus. Faith in the God of Israel often looks childishly unrealistic, and I think they would have dismissed Jesus' words as precisely that. Jesus sends them all out. Only Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and John are present with Jesus. They go into where the body of the child lay, and Jesus takes her by the hand. And perhaps all of those present would have actually in that seen something that was actually quite shocking. Um, Jesus, as a rabbi, he's touching a dead body. Um, For dead bodies were unclean and a defiling influence. Uh, priests, for example, were not allowed even to enter a room where there was a dead body uh, because in doing so they would make themselves unclean. And they were not allowed to enter a room with a dead body even if that was their father or mother. But Jesus goes in, takes her by the hand and says to her, cum," which means little girl, I say to you, rise up. Uh, Talitha uh, literally means little lamb. And it was a common way of referring to children, just as we call children kids, which means baby goats. And, um, I mean, I, 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 you know, you don't encounter it so much anymore, but but I'm used to, say, for example, from my parents, I'm used to them using kid, not necessarily to refer to small children or children, but as a term of endearment. Oh, your dear kid, um, Meaning a term of endearment, not necessarily that you're a child. So, so we, you know, use baby goat, for, meaning both, both small children and term of endearment. And Talitha tel- is is a term of endearment. It's affectionate. It's a form of address like sweetheart. So again, we see that Jesus uses the intimate language of family. And we notice that yet again, Jesus does not pray. And he does not invoke the name of the Lord. He didn't say, dear God, please may the life of this child return. Nor did he say, in the name of the Lord. He didn't do that. He just said, I say to you, I say to you. Jesus has the authority himself, in himself, to give life to this child. The power in himself over death. Um, there's, only, there's only one explanation f- for that. Je- Jesus is God with us. This, this guy speaks like he's God, and he acts like he's God, and things happen like he's God. Je- Jesus is God with us. Immediately, the girl stood up and was completely well, able to stand, walk, and interact with those present. She, she, didn't, she didn't you know, come back to life and enter into convalescence. No, she's fine, as though it never happened. Um, Two small details remain to be examined before the story is also concluded. Um, Firstly, Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Now, in Mark's gospel, it's not uncommon to uh, hear Jesus tell people not to tell anybody else about what's just happened, about what he's done. And this is confusing. Uh, the the phenomenon is sometimes referred to as Mark's messianic secret because Jesus actually is the messiah but he doesn't want anyone to know why would that be well to be sure first century Jewish messianic expectation expectations were, were all about being delivered from from foreign occupying forces so so to the Jews the messiah is all about kicking out the Romans and so being known as the Messiah could be both dangerous and distracting if actually your agenda as Messiah is very different to that. But, so that could be why Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But I think something else is going on here. Because you know what? Within an hour or two, everyone is going to know, every, everyone, hundreds, possibly thousands of people, are going to know that this child is fine. Just as soon as she finishes her lunch, she's going to go out to play. And those who had earlier laughed at Jesus will remember his words, the child is not dead, but asleep. And they will mistakenly assume, oh, so oh, we were wrong, that the child actually was asleep. She she wasn't dead, she was just asleep. And they will be in the dark as to the whole thing. You see, this is a private miracle, and private miracles exclude. Who is excluded? Those who didn't take Jesus seriously. Having rejected God's word about who Jesus is, it is as though for them this miracle never happened. And that's what they'll assume. Why is that important? Well, I think it might be important because the the raising of this little girl points to the raising of Jesus by the Father on the third day. The resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. A miracle that we're going to look at in six weeks' time. And that too was a private miracle. The resurrection had hundreds of witnesses, but they were all believers. All people who had already committed to following Christ. And every single resurrection appearance, and there were dozens of them, but they were all in private settings. The resurrection is a private miracle. So it is a miracle that excludes. More about that in six weeks' time. The second detail to look at J- Jesus told the little girl's parents to give her something to eat. Uh, it's not a detail that Mark needed to record. If he'd left it out, we wouldn't have noticed. So, what is the significance? Well, again, we're speculating. Uh, perhaps it is evidence showing us that the Jesus, that showing us that the, the, this girl really is fully well. She's able to eat a meal. Jesus too will ask for a food ask for food after the resurrection. Um, at one point, he turns up and you know asks asks for something to eat, and they give him broiled fish. Um, evidence that he is fully alive, bodily alive. Resurrection of the body, not a ghost or a spirit. Perhaps, uh, perhaps it points to that. Perhaps it's just a detail that shows us the love of Christ in a different way. Jesus has blessed the woman with ongoing physical health. So too now Je- Jesus shows his concern for the ongoing physical welfare of this child. Uh, Jesus is concerned for our physical well-being as well as our spiritual well-being. Perhaps that. Perhaps both. Well, story two now concludes. Uh, jarius a leader of the local jewish community in galilee he wanted his daughter to be healed he already knew that jesus had god's power to heal almost certainly jarius assumed that jesus was a prophet and he was right jesus is a prophet sent by god but actually he's so much more than that and now he knows he's seen for himself jesus is god with us Jesus speaks like God and acts like God, and things happen like he's God. Jairus got a heck of a lot more than he asked for. So, so what have we learned? Um, the two stories together show us a lot about who Jesus is. We know that he's a king, but what kind of king? These stories show us that Jesus reigns, that Jesus reigns Um, has sovereignty over sickness, death, uncleanliness, and chaos. Um, Jesus heals the sick and raises the dead, not as a prophet, but as God walking amongst his people we also see that Jesus curiously cannot be defiled. Now, in the Old Testament, holiness, when it's bestowed on something other than God, when holiness is bestowed on people or an object, on a priest or a silver plate or a sacrificed animal, it's basically an alien quality bestowed on it by God such that it is acceptable to God, an alien quality that can be lost through defilement. But this... This with Jesus is different. This Jesus' holiness is a hard, unbreakable, inherent, not alien holiness. This is the holiness of God. Nothing can defile Jesus because Jesus is the source of holiness. Jesus is God with us. And when he says you're clean, you're clean. And that means acceptable. You walk into the presence of a holy God without bursting into flames. Um. Jesus is God with us, the source of holiness. And, and we also see that Jesus is Lord over chaos, randomness, accident and chance, which for me actually is very good news. Um, it, it looked like a chance encounter in the marketplace had ruined Jarius' chance of Jesus healing his daughter. But Jesus is sovereign over chance things. Don't be afraid. Just keep believing. Yes, it's gone wrong just keep believing. So how how should we respond? Well, both stories are about looking to Jesus for healing. The New Testament teaches us clearly that it is always right to pray for healing in the face of sickness and disability, because it is always the will of God to heal. The character of God is perfectly revealed in Jesus, and Jesus never declined to heal, or ignored a request to heal, not from folk who'd understood that he was the solution to their problem. Both stories are about faith. People, but what is that? People, Well, that's people believing God, that Jesus is the solution to their problem, and finding that they were right to think that. And both stories are about people getting more than they asked for. God, God, God delights in those who run to Jesus, his son. He heals them, he blesses them, he calls them his own, son, daughter, sweetheart, kid. He, 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 he answers their prayers and in doing so, graciously gives them more than they asked for. How, how then should we respond? By putting our faith in Jesus and continuing to put our faith in Jesus that he is and always will be the solution to our problems. And in coming to him in faith, he'll graciously give us what we need, indeed, even more than we ask for. The Lord be with you.